Welcome to a new series. We hope to spend this series over the next couple of months focusing in on Jesus, thinking about as deeply as we've got time to think on on who he is and what he did for us. And so we've just started that by opening up the New Testament and reading Matthew chapter 1, where we discover that the New Testament introduces Jesus to us with a genealogy. A genealogy, a long, repetitive list of names. So that's what's in front of us. And so let's go there. Let's uh, dig into this text in Matthew chapter 1 and see what we can learn here. I mean, after all, Matthew felt it was important to write this list of people. And by God's providence, our whole New Testament begins with this genealogy. So let's explore it. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so it's a genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 1. That's good. That, that's what we're here for, to find out about Jesus. But right away we might be wondering, as we read that verse, how can Jesus be both the son of David and the son of Abraham? Well, Matthew doesn't mean us to take that word son in its literal sense here. David, by the way, lived about a thousand years before Jesus, and Abraham about 800 years before that. Jesus is the descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham. That's what Matthew means in verse 1. And David, therefore, was also a descendant of Abraham, if you know how these family lines work, as indeed Matthew then goes on to make clear in verses 2 through 6 in that first paragraph. And in fact, there are three paragraphs here in this genealogy that all serve to draw out for us the ancestry of Jesus, linking him and and linking everyone else before him in that list, all the way back to Abraham as the starting point. So that seems to be important to Matthew here. This is one particular family line of descent that runs from Abraham, and it runs through David and ends with Jesus. And he's flagged all that in verse 1, but then we read it all as we read through the list. And again, we see it at the end of all the names there in verse 16, if we drop right to the bottom of this genealogy, that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So that's good to know again, confirmation. We're on the right page. We want to find out about this this Christ, and so this is it. This is where we where we need to be. This is the genealogy of Jesus, who is called Christ. And the whole genealogy, let's be honest, in between verses 1 and 16 that mark out that this is where we want to be, the whole genealogy is fairly repetitive, isn't it? In that, you know, there's a, there's a pretty standard formula running all the way through. Such and such was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of etc., and so on and so on. Although that formula does change at a few key junctions, as you might have noticed as we read through that text. At the end of the first paragraph, for example, we read there that Jesse became the father of David, the king. Now, that's interesting because everyone who follows that comment in the the second paragraph, all those guys were also kings as it happens, but only about David marking the end of that first section does Matthew add that detail. And again, at the end of the second paragraph, that that standard formula changes again there because Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And that deportation thing kicks off the third paragraph. And then the same old formula comes back again and runs through until we get to Jesus. Verse 16 at the end of paragraph 3. And the genealogy is ordered around those three chunks of people. As Matthew then actually says himself in verse 17, that's what he's done with this genealogy. He's ordered it this way. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. And we might start to wonder what Matthew is doing with this genealogy because this isn't just a simple way of telling us Jesus' family tree. Those little changes to the wording and Matthew's structure in these three paragraphs and his conclusion there in verse 17 flag for us that there's some other purpose for this genealogy that we're also supposed to see. And actually, if you do go and dig around on this and and get into this genealogy in a bit more detail, look some of this stuff up, you'll soon enough realise for yourself that it it isn't just sitting here to tell us of all Jesus' ancestors, you know, the way that you and I might try to do that for ourselves on Ancestry.com or whatever. No, there's definitely something else going on here in Matthew chapter 1 about Jesus. For one thing, this genealogy here isn't exact in the way that we would want a family tree to be exact if, if we were doing our own family tree. There's, there's actually people missing from the list here. So if you look up the historical records in the book of Chronicles, in the Old Testament of the Bible, you'll discover that four people are missing from the second paragraph between David and the deportation to Babylon. There are four people missing. Uh, FYI, if you're interested, uh, Kings Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah and Jehoiakim are all recorded in black and white in the book of Chronicles and also in the book of Kings too, for good measure. But they're not in Matthew's list here. Which, incidentally, again, means that we can't read father in its literal sense either because on a couple of occasions here it actually means grandfather and great-great-grandfather because of those four people that Matthew has skipped over. Anyway, for another thing, there's actually, if you look carefully enough, only 13 names in that last paragraph. Between the deportation to Babylon and Jesus, there's only 13 names. Unless you count Jeconiah at the beginning twice, you know, count him at the end of paragraph 2 and then again count him at the start of paragraph 3. But you and I wouldn't do that if we were compiling our family tree on Ancestry.com, would we? No. Uh, And yet Matthew is content to do that, it seems. He's content to force this kind of double count on Jeconiah to make his symmetry here work, 14, 14, 14. And so all up, I think it's pretty safe for us to say that Matthew's not intending this genealogy to serve exactly the same kind of purpose that we would use a genealogy for today. I mean, he certainly is demonstrating a clear family line of descent running from Abraham through David to Jesus. There's no doubt about that. It's certainly important, too, that he does that. But you know, he, just, he doesn't do that with the kind of clinical precision we would insist on, listing every single person in the line if it was our family tree. And, and, and if we listen to his, his forced symmetry of 14, 14, 14, and, and, and we note those different changes of language at each of those paragraph breaks, we realise that Matthew is doing something more. He is flagging major stages 
of history. He's flagging major stages of history and Jesus as the culmination of that history. As a church, we'll explore the historical accounts in the Bible from time to time because they're very important to understanding the whole picture. But uh, for the sake of time today, let me just flag these three things that Matthew's singled out here in very broad brushstrokes. Abraham in the first paragraph. Well, Abraham marked a line of promise from God to bring blessing to the world. David In the second paragraph, David marked a promise from God to install a good and righteous king who would rule forever over God's people. And the return from exile in Babylon in the third block. Well, the return from exile marked a promise from God to one day put new hearts in his people and usher in a new age of repentance and forgiveness. Now, Matthew's original Jewish audience mightn't have noticed a few kings from history missing in the lineup here. <laughs> but they would have certainly known and understood, I reckon, those three epic stages of their own history Abraham, David, and the return from Babylon. And so too, I reckon, they would have understood and known God's promises that those things all pointed to and were associated with. And the anticipation of all that history, Matthew says, lands on Jesus, verse 16, who is called Christ. And you and I sitting here today need to be sure that we are as clear as possible concerning this Christ on whom Matthew has just landed our focus You and I must learn to see the Bible story, as Matthew sees it, as centering on, landing on, culminating in this Jesus who is called Christ. And so that's what we hope to do. Spending the next month, if we can, looking at what Matthew teaches us about Jesus as a person. And then... Another month, hopefully, looking at what Matthew teaches us about Jesus' work. We want to explore who Jesus is and then what he came to do. And that's the series we're aiming for. It should keep us busy for a couple of months, God willing. The person and work of Jesus the Christ. The second half of this first chapter in Matthew's Gospel that we've opened up today starts to unpack Jesus as a person, starting with his birth. I mean, having zoomed out across such a broad sweep of history in that first half, the the narrative now zooms right in close to the pregnant mother Mary and her fiancé Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife 
for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That miraculous conception of Jesus reminds us that there was another change to that default formula in the genealogy we just read, right at the end. All the other guys in the list were the father of, but not Joseph. Joseph was not the father. Language change. Joseph was the husband, verse 16, of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. For that which is conceived in her, verse 20 we now read, is from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we must lock in about the person of Jesus, the Christ, is that he was born of Mary, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. Everyone else, I mean as far as we know, everyone else in all of human history was conceived Well, like all the other people in the genealogy there, the seed of a man and the seed of a woman fused together to make a baby. That's where we all come from, isn't it? But not Jesus. Before Joseph and Mary came together, verse 18, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Does that mean Jesus is, I don't know, biologically speaking or whatever, God? Because all that genealogy that we did just read, it's probably the most detailed genealogy that's ever been compiled for anyone ever. (laughs) But it was all for naught in a strictly biological kind of sense because Joseph, in the end, was a father to Jesus. But Jesus was not of Joseph's bloodline. Mary was equally as human as Joseph, of course, and she also had fathers going back through uh, David to Abraham. But with this final stage of history that Matthew has flagged for us, something epic happened. Suddenly there is a person on the scene who is not of simple human origins like the rest of us. Jesus fully took on human form. He became just like us. And yet at the same time, he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Just think about the uniqueness of that. Just think about the gravity of that for a minute. I mean, I don't know, hypothetically, if we could somehow uh, run the DNA on everyone who ever lived, if if we could just get their DNA somehow and, and run the analysis, we'd be able to construct, I guess, an exact genetic tree of every person ever, all the way branching down from Adam and Eve to you and I. Except, that is, for Jesus. Because Jesus wouldn't click into that tree of simple mother and father genetics. Jesus would be on a different page altogether, wouldn't he? Jesus' genetics, I mean, I guess they just wouldn't show a paternal line at all because his mother was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, descending all the way from Abraham and all the way from Adam before that, albeit along Mary's genetic human line rather than Joseph's. And yet on the other hand, 
directly conceived from God, such that we, we just can't even think in simple genetic terms anymore. That's how epic this person Jesus is as Matthew's new stage of history bursts in here in chapter 1. There's no previous category for us to even process this kind of information. So this first thing we need to come to terms with about Jesus is that he is utterly, in his very being, unique. Because in this that we call his incarnation, Jesus as he took on flesh was formed from both the human and the divine. And just in case we missed that, again in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Again, I mean, that's the only experience we know of this stuff. Absolutely shattered. (laughs) The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That prophet, by the way, through whom the Lord spoke that prophecy was Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, if you're interested. And this prophecy was given to Isaiah, if you're interested, during the reign of King Ahaz in verse 9 of that genealogy we were just looking at before. Twenty generations, that is, uh, before Jesus. No wonder Matthew's excited. While we think about this epic new stage of history at the start of the New Testament, let me ask you to look up something else in the Old Testament. Keep a finger there in Matthew chapter 1 and see if you can find Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And when you find it, turn to the very end of Second Chronicles. If you've got one of the church Bibles there, it's on page 388. Second Chronicles. It's buried roughly in the middle of our Old Testament. But did you know that the English and Hebrew Bibles are actually arranged in different order? It's all the same content, but it's just arranged in different order. So that in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is actually placed at the very end. That's right. Not chronologically, of course, just structurally. This text that we're about to look at is, I guess, sort of the cliffhanger uh, that the Hebrew Bible finishes on, if you were to read and turn to the last page of the Hebrew Bible. And by way of context, here in Second Chronicles, the Jews are in exile in Babylon because of the deportation that Matthew mentioned in that genealogy before. So we're in between paragraphs 2 and paragraph 3. And this is how history kicked over into that third part of the genealogy. The return from Babylon. It happened this way. In Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth 
and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And the people of Judah returned under the blessing of King Cyrus. And no doubt the Lord their God was with them, as he said there, in one sense of the word. I mean, helping them, watching over them, uh, as they said about slowly rebuilding their city and their nation. But as we turn back to Matthew chapter 1 now, that those final words in the Hebrew scriptures from Cyrus, may the Lord their God be with them, now take on a more literal, a more prophetic, a more powerful sense. Because as Isaiah had earlier prophesied, the virgin has now conceived and born a son, Emmanuel, God with us. To flesh that out a little bit more... Now that you're back in Matthew, I'd like you to look up one more passage, but don't worry, this one's a bit easier to find. It's it's in Matthew, but this time at, at the end of Matthew's Gospel. I mean, the other end of Matthew's Gospel, you know. Uh, flick across to Matthew chapter 28. At the other bookend to Matthew's new Gospel here, heralding this new age of history, in Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus came and said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We'll put aside for today the one name of Father, Son and Spirit. And we'll put aside for today that all authority in heaven and on earth is in Jesus' hands. But notice, if you will, just the closing words from Jesus that Matthew has recorded for us in this gospel. I am with you, Jesus says. God will be with us, Isaiah declared. May your God be with you, Cyrus said. I am with you always, Jesus promised. We must understand what Matthew wants to show us about who Jesus is. Because I tell you, the longing, the longing of the whole biblical history is nothing less than that God will be with us. And I am always, Jesus said. And I'm showing you these things, even if you already know them, because people will knock on your door and try to deceive you out of these fundamental truths of Scripture about Jesus, who is God with us. But when they knock, remember this. Those people, if they say that, haven't understood even this first page of the New Testament about Jesus, where Matthew gives it to us in black and white. God with us. And I tell you this because once you've seen it here on the first page of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, you won't be able to unsee it all the way through this gospel to the end of it and all the way through the rest of the New Testament. God will be with us, he promised through Isaiah in the Old Testament. I am with you, Jesus said. 
We also have to get our heads around, of course, what Matthew wants to show us about what Jesus came to earth like this to do, why he's with us. And we're going to get more into that in the second half of the series. But even now, Matthew's telling us uh, what the angel had to say about that very question. Because if you turn back to Matthew chapter 1, in verse 21, did you notice what the angel said about all this? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, just so you know, translates in English to the Lord saves. So, if the prophecy given by the Lord through Isaiah was to name the child Emmanuel, or God with us, then why did the angel here say to call him Jesus, or the Lord saves? God with us, or the Lord saves? How are they connected? What does God with us have to do with the Lord saving? Well, one last thing we might notice about that genealogy is that it's a long list of sinners. The genie actually reminds us some of that sin, points it out to us, just so we don't forget. Judah, verse 3, fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, if you know that story. And if you do know that story, then you know there's a lot more sin to that story than just that detail. And likewise, verse 6 reminds us that even King David fathered Solomon by another man's wife. And again, if you know that story, you know there's a lot more sin to that story than just that detail. And there are other examples in the genealogy too, triggering our memory of the sin in this story. And the list doesn't skip over some truly awful names. Some of these people were described in the Old Testament as the most evil people, if you look up their stories. Matthew's not hiding anything in his list. He's reminding us. Some of these people in the genealogy are more or less anonymous to us. We don't have any details, but even there we can be very sure that they were all sinners. Because everyone, every Every one of us and, and everyone ever is sinful, according to Scripture. I mean, nobody can challenge that, I wouldn't think, if they're in their right mind. But the Bible does make it expressly clear. Abraham, David, all of us, the Bible says that nobody is righteous out of this whole human tree, not even one. And so this genealogy is a list of sinful human beings, just like you and I. Except when we get to Jesus. At the end. Salvation from sin could not have come from any of these other people. And it wouldn't matter what genealogy you cared to single out from the human race, the same thing would be true. Salvation cannot come purely from within humanity, because humanity is entirely riddled with sin. And how can the sinful save the sinful? No, salvation must come from outside the system. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, this salvation came completely into the system to save it from within. Jesus was born of Mary. Could God have done anything more to show us, do you think, 
just how much he has loved us and saved us. God manifestly bound himself to us. He became as one of us. Despite that sin that stretches across the whole human race, he became as one of us. And so God has shown us the sheer depth of these phrases we're looking at here. Surely, surely we can now say that the Lord saves. Because we can also say God is with us. Matthew, we might notice, doesn't even need to stop and explain the two names. And yet he wrote them there, side by side, in one verse and the next almost. (laughs) But he makes no commentary. Because they dovetail so perfectly together, because of that beautiful theology underneath all of this. This is the person and work of Jesus hand in hand, actually, as a bit of a spoiler alert, a teaser for this whole series. In Jesus, you see... God is with us, and by means of Emmanuel, the Lord saves. In Jesus, God is with us, and by means of Emmanuel, the Lord's saving us. Isn't it just mind-popping how these two things fit together? Isn't it nice to contemplate the God who sits far, far above our human mess, and yet would get right down into it with us. It's only when we come to terms with who Jesus is that we really start to grasp just how much Jesus has done for us. That's the theme of this series, the person and the work of this one we call the Christ. I hope you enjoy it. But for now, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us in this Bible. We thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we ask that as we work through this Gospel of Matthew, that you would be with us and help us to see the connections and the threads between them. Please help us to explore and understand these words Matthew has written to us about Jesus and help us to feed on these things in our souls and in our lives. Thank you for what we learn here right away in chapter 1, that in some mystery you condescended from your glory and came into our mess to save us from our sin. Help us to explore that more and more over the course of the series and over the course of the rest of our lives too, Lord. But already, even now, write these two truths on our heart. In Jesus, there is both human and divine. And in Jesus, we can be saved from our sin. Teach us these things, Lord, and and lead us home in Jesus' name. Amen.